Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Richard Salzman. I'm one of the four PhD senior scholars at the Atlas Society, and the Atlas Society is the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in very creative ways, really, such as through animated videos and graphic novels. Now, this is the first in a series of things we're trying periodically at the Society in a series uh, known as Atlas Society Asks, but here it's Scholars Ask Scholars. And we have four senior scholars at the Society, thanks to uh, uh, the inspiration and efforts of Chairman Jay LaPere and uh, President Jennifer Grossman and the great team they have. So we're building intellectual capital here. <clears throat> and uh, three decades ago, my guest today, David Kelly, began the Atlas Society. And it's just been an enormously valuable venture, I think, with its ups and downs, I'm sure he'll admit, but where we stand today, it's just fabulous. It's got a unique approach to objectivism and collegiality. I, I'm honored to be a part of it, I'm, and I, along with the others, Stephen Hicks, Jason Hill, uh, Rod Trzynski, and others. So I am delighted today and honored to be able to talk to, uh, spend an hour with David Kelly uh, about the things that he most values, about his intellectual development, about his founding and promotion of the Atlas Society, his amazing, really amazing, unique role in objectivism, and his present views, views on the present state of the society and the future. Now, quickly, may, some of you may not know, it's worth mentioning, David earned his PhD at Princeton in philosophy in 1974, and he taught for many years at great schools like Vassar College and Brandeis University up in Boston. First time I came across David, I was reading Barron's magazine. He wrote dozens of really fabulous essays for Barron's in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, he's also written many technical articles in uh, academic journals and five important books. Let me name them. The Evidence of the Senses, which is a realist theory of perception. That's 1986. I believe that came out of David's dissertation. 1996, Unrugged Individualism, the Selfish Basis of Benevolence. 1998, A Life of One's Own, Individual Rights and the Welfare State. Five editions of a logic textbook called The Art of Reasoning, a really fabulous textbook. That's it, I have it, I don't know if you can see it. Uh, and Truth and Toleration in Objectivism, the, the Contested Legacy of Ayn Rand in three different editions. Now, David, I know you formally retired, allegedly, a few years ago, but I... I have known few younger intellectuals who are as busy as you are, <laughs> as, as productive as you are. So I don't know. I don't even. You 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 ruined the concept of retirement. I, I have no idea what it means anymore. Uh, but thank you so much for taking your time to to join us uh, in your so-called sleepy retirement. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Rob. I'm sorry, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and yes. Um, Retirement, uh, like many people who say they're retired and maybe formally went through, you know, uh, leaving a salary job. Um, very few people I know, uh, from my father uh, on down through many, many friends, um, actually sit still. And I don't play golf, so. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning, David, or what I consider to be the, the intellectual beginnings. So how did you, first of all, where did you grow up and how did you get interested in philosophy? And, in, and specifically, 
the hardest part of it, really. I mean, epistemology, it's got to be like one of the hardest parts. Of this. How did you get interested? Well, I, I, I grew up in outside Cleveland, Ohio, a um, suburb um, on the east side called Shaker Heights, which had a very good school system. That's why my parents moved there. Yeah. And uh, the, I guess the, the, the reason I got interested or the way I got interested in philosophy, well, I, my family belonged to a Presbyterian church. Uh, and uh, when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14, whatever we had, uh, was time that, that that's when confirmation took place, like, you know, right. of a bar mitzvah. And um, so, but anyway, we had a, a class meeting every Wednesday night, um, just the people who were in this class. And we got talking about a lot of issues in the Bible. And at some point it occurred to me um, that I, I just began thinking about them philosophically. Uh, one question in particular and this was something that another student asked. Um, you know, it, it, Jesus often talks as if suffering is a good thing, turning the other cheek, you know, and so forth. He said, what's good about suffering? I thought, that's a really great question. Wow. And I, so I, I ran with that a little bit. I, it, it, and uh, But in addition to thinking, I, it, I, it got me thinking, how did she know to ask that question? Where did that thought come from? And um, so I began thinking, I just uh, went you know, from one issue to the other. Um, I, I became uh, an individualist um, early on. Uh, the only ultimate goal that made sense to me was uh, pursuit of happiness. And I was an atheist um, and then at some point, um, I came across Ayn Rand, and it turns out my parents had a copy of the Fountainhead, the first edition, I think, uh, on their bookshelf. So I began reading, and then that was it. I read everything else. Um, I was just astounded. Um, how I got interested in philosophy, um, well, I was already thinking along philosophical lines. I didn't know that's what it was called. Yeah. But when I had to pick a college, I thought, well, what are the subjects I like? Uh, I like English because we talk about real issues there, life issues, yep. ethical yep. issues. Yep. But I also like math and science because that, that's method. That's how you, you can actually assemble the evidence and, and support a conclusion. And I thought, well, is there anything, anything that combines those? And, you know, philosophy is the answer. So um, I decided even before I went to college, that that's what I wanted to major in. Epistemology, um, it just always interested me how the mind works. I mean, going back to, you know, asking that question about the confirmation class question, how, yeah. where yeah. did that question come from? Right, yeah. And, uh, and I guess I've always been, uh, you know, somewhat introspective watching my own mind. Um, it just was so interesting and um you know, uh, my senior year in high school, I, I, I just spent a lot of time reading in philosophy, not all epistemology, the history of philosophy, John Locke's second treatise. I was very interested yeah. a little yeah. bit. So um, anyway, at, and I, when I was in college, I, I liked the courses on epistemology the best. So I stuck with it. You know, sometimes I've heard it said that in, when you're an undergrad, you learn how to ask the right questions. 
and then a graduate student is supposed to be able to answer them. That's, <laughs> that's good. Whether that's true or not, whether they teach it that way. Now, were you undergrad at Princeton as well or, uh, as the PhD? Or No, I was an undergrad at Brown University. In Brown, Boston. that's right. So yeah. pretty good pedigree there, Kelly. Uh, <laughs> you, must have been a, you must have been a smart kid. That's just fabulous. Uh, now, Richard Rorty, who was your chairman, right, on the committee for your dissertation, right. is he... Fair to say he was a prominent, prominent philosopher, but also leans in the direction of postmodernism. So how did you work with him? I mean, was he a pronounced postmodern when you were with him? Was he helpful to you? Was he a barrier? How would you describe the relationship? Um, well, it was dissertation done. Yeah. Yeah, it was very positive. Um, huh. He uh, we argued all the time. Uh-huh. And I, I was writing in epistemology about sense perception and right. uh, the foundations of knowledge, and he didn't believe there were foundations. Uh, so yeah. he was kind of in transition. He, he had begun reading a lot of Heidegger and uh, right. Dewey, um, but not as fully postmodern as he was you know, later on. Um, <clears throat> he was still kind of in the analytic philosophy mode that was you know, the yeah. dominant school. the time that's the the approach that uh most of my courses really liked him um he i think it was maybe the first year i saw that he was going to be teaching a graduate course called idealism from bradley to quine uh-huh. and i thought holy cow yeah Bradley was this 19th century British idealist that almost no one reads anymore. Quine was the Ur logician. Um, and I said, if he could see the, I, I could see the connection because I'm an objectivist. I, yeah. Yeah, they're both primacy of consciousness in right. at, yes. at people right. level. But yeah. that's, that's the kind of thinking I learned from objectivism, not from philosophy. And I said, if, if, if he can see that kind of abstraction and deal at that yeah. level, I want this, I want to be in his class. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And uh, and then he accepted my uh, request for him to be my thesis advisor. And he was very good. I mean, we disagreed all the time, but it was always in a, you know, he was a good teacher and also a great supporter when I was looking for a job afterwards. I've met many professors like that, and I had the same attitude, uh, partake in their brilliance and set aside the content if necessary and yeah. It might have influenced your subsequent view on collegiality, David, and the, how you deal with people who are not in your orbit quite, so so to speak. Now, since Evidence of the Senses was, I think, published in 1986, right. talk a little bit about the transition from the dissertation to the book. Did it change much? Were you becoming more objectivist during the transition? There were a number of years in between, right, or not, between... Oh, yeah. dissertation and the book. So how, how much of it did you change? How much did it become more objectivist as it entered publication? What, what was the story behind the, the ultimate publication of the book? Well, when I was in grad school working on my thesis, um, you know, I had to, you know, anchor uh, or at least deal with a lot of uh, the uh, people, other people in the field who had written on my subject. Yeah. And um, and there were some people that Rory really liked a lot. I didn't like much, but I, he yeah. wanted me to write a chapter on on uh, uh, Wilfred Sellers, Quine. Um, and 
the um, what, when I finished the thesis and then um, began working at Vassar, I uh, I knew that I wanted to turn this into a book. I mean, the idea, the central idea of innovation in my thesis was something I, an idea I had as an undergraduate, and yeah. I fleshed it out and uh, and I I wanted to write a book about that, but. Um, I knew I had to get away from the being embedded in uh, that analytic framework. Yeah. And I was fortunate in uh, a couple of informal seminars he was teaching in New York where I was living at the time. And um, he, he talked about something called the de-lousing, getting, um, uh, getting rid of the academic lice in your hair. <laughs> yeah. And including including David, the jargon that you and I know, yeah. it's just uh, I call it graduees. The, the language you have to use to uh, is performative more than it is clarifying. But yeah, exactly. The book, yeah. Is, the book does the book is technical, but when I read it, it was understandable. I mean, you had to really concentrate, but I think you did take out a lot of the graduees that you feel that you oh. did. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. The, I, it, it's interesting for anyone who's in philosophy now and maybe listening to this. Um, one of the, the big tasks that I had was I, I was an objectivist. I, was, I wanted to write about the objectivist theory of perception yeah, yeah. Um, in detail. Um, I had been tra tra trained and steeped in and had to write for um, a different analytic philosophy right. audience. Yeah. And so... It took me a while before I felt I could be truly bilingual and, <laughs> yeah. and, and put those two contexts in the same ballpark and let, let my context talk to theirs. Right. And that was a, that it took, that's why one of the reasons it took 10 years before I got the book out. So, yeah. I remember, I, I remember reading the chapter on the primacy of existence. It's just fabulous. And, and yet that's really from metaphysics but it's absolutely foundational for what you said in the rest of the book. And, and, and I'm just a broad picture now, David, would you say your subtitle was a realist theory of perception? Right. At the time it appeared, this was a minority view. The realist view, was that a minority view or just not fully fleshed out view uh, in the field? There was nothing I was aware of that was anything like the view I was presenting. Um, yes. All right. And, you know, I really, it's, uh, you know, I was building on Rand's shoulders here. Um, yeah. In, in, yeah. And that, by the way, that first chapter is one that I wrote just for the book. It was not my thesis. Yeah. But um, anyway, the um, realism at the time it, it meant different things to different people. At, um, most of people were writing about perception were what I call representationalists. They thought the immediate right. objects of awareness were inside our heads. Right. Instead of ideas, Lockean ideas. So we were, we were perceiving not reality, but images of reality. So we were one step removed. Exactly. Right? And, and yeah. then you start getting, well, then there's optical illusions and you can't be sure of your senses, sense perception, something like that. Right. And you were trying to prevent yeah. that. Right. So I, I had whole, cha whole chapters on, I had one whole chapter on representationalism and the arguments for it. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but I, the, um, 
a lot of people would have called themselves realists because they might have had that belief about the inner objects of perception, but they thought there was an external world. Um, yeah, right. Most of the most of the philosophers are right at that time. I don't think we're postmodern idealists um, yeah. who just said yeah. everything's a text or anything like that. Um, but there were they do all these minutia about how we know about an external world, what the inferences are, um, and you know. So I just I had to deal with all the arguments. But once you yeah. clear that 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 framework out of your head, it becomes much clearer. <laughs> I remember when I met you in, I think, 1985 at La Jolla, and you were lecturing on parts of this, and uh, the diaphanous model of awareness was being eviscerated by Dr. Kelly, and I was just bowled over. And it was, <laughs> yeah, it was just amazing, because you know, David, that was a general audience. I mean, there was an intelligent layman, but just amazing material. Also, some great lectures I recall you doing on free will, validating volition. Now. If, if one reads Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology here today, mostly about concept formation, right? right? Isn't it true in the beginning that sequencing from sensations to percepts to concepts, she kind of just stipulates the evidence of the senses are valid, right? Mm -hmm. She doesn't go into it in depth. So are you feeling like your book really contributes an important part of the foundation. I mean, if concepts are based on percepts and percepts on sensation, if you don't have the evidence of the senses, the link is lost. So how would you place the book, you know, relative to introduction to epistemology? Well, I think it, um, I mean, introduction to epistemology dealt with concepts, which is, yeah. is the single most important issue in, epistemology but um you know then we have to say um that the, the the aspects she did not develop were what concepts right. are based on namely perception right. right at the other end how concepts are formed into propositions that right. become yep. true or false what is that about yeah and uh so um yeah i th i do think that that the book um adds something uh substantive to objectivism you know in in fundamental terms you, you know it, her it, the primacy of existence was her concept that's the realist yeah. Uh, yeah. basic idea and even the uh, idea of the form of perception which i developed in right. some detail um came from her uh, i learned it from leonard but i think it was i mean that was her idea of in there was a one of, the, one of the things about objectivism is that you know the there's now a lot of written literature, but at the time in like going yeah. back to the sixteenth century, yeah. the, the amount that was actually written was just a small fraction of the oral tradition of yeah. things that were right. discussed in seminars and uh, right. lectures and so forth. So yeah, anyway. Um, so those some of those basic concepts came, definitely came from Rand. I didn't invent them, but what I did was uh, I think flesh them out, define the terms, show how they apply, answer objections, um, and then make a beginning in, in the evidence of the census too. Okay, we, we have perception now. We ha and now we have some concepts. Yeah. Um, what is the actual nature of the? what's in philosophy or epistemology is called the justification 
yeah. uh, statements like, you know, this is a sheet of paper or um, that's Richard. Well, that, that's more complicated. But um, so, um, yeah. And even something like uh, analytic synthetic dichotomy, which, which Peacock took apart, which I think has usually been usually added as an appendix to introduction to objectivist epistemology. Right. Yeah, that, that I remember reading that three times before I understood it. But um, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that strikes me, David. That's the kind of thing that you and Leonard and others did where I don't think she could have done that. Not because she wasn't smart and not because she didn't have, uh, you know, a valid theory of concepts, but it, you and the other objectivist philosophers also know intimately the, the history of philosophy, you know, and uh, right. Kant and, and what's sometimes called Kant's gimmick and all that kind of thing. And, and therefore to be able to take apart and understand something like the analytic synthetic strikes me as it's an application of objectivism to a controversy in philosophy that really mm -hmm. needs to be dealt, dealt with. And if it's not dealt with, you know, the, the corpus can't be considered complete. Uh, I wonder if you think that as well. And you might, you've come up with other things like that, where if yeah. you didn't do it, no one else was really going to do that. Yeah, you know, that's a good, very good point. That when we, um, when we think about open objectivism and what additions are made by other people, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Learns essay is a good example. I think Rand, you know, uh, saw through that dichotomy, yes, well, as instantly, yeah. and was you know didn't didn't think it was an important issue. It was too obvious. Right. There are a lot of things she thought. Well, it's too obvious. I don't. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but my brain students can write it up. But <laughs> right, and she probably helped him with the essay. But but to have a not a just a foot, but two feet in academia. Yeah. And to know, well, okay, Miss Rand, you may this may be clear as a truck to you, but you got to believe these people are just, uh, you know, getting all caught up in their own underwear, and and uh, you may it may sound silly from afar, but this is what's holding back philosophy, so uh, it has to be done. Uh, uh, great, David. That the comments on on evidence of the senses. It's such a fabulous book. I recommend anyone who hasn't read it absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Read it. it. It's it's fabulous. I love that. I love the backstory on it. Now, uh, did you like academia? Did you like teaching? Uh, academic life, or at first I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, getting a job and actually earning yeah. salary was like amazing to me. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I spent they're, paying, they're paying me to be an epistemologist. That's yeah. Funny. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I was living on a well. I. I could I could tell you my, what my stipend grad stipend was in my first salary, but it, it, unless you know the inflation stats right. really well, yeah, like no, it, yeah, it, don't it, no, don't it. say the number. <laughs> People won't understand the inflation adjusted part, you know. But I anyway. heard. I, I, did you say? Did you say somewhere? I think I read it in the intro. The art of reasoning, the great logic textbook you have, came out of your Vassar lectures. I mean, you were teaching logic at Vassar. Yeah, that book probably would not have been possible had you not repeatedly taught logic at Vassar, right? That's right. Yeah, um, improved it every semester. That kind of thing. Is that the story of, of art of reasoning? Yeah, when I when I went to um, Vassar, um, there was a, a woman um, a logician from MIT who had been hired just previously to me, and yeah. at so at one meeting we were having we were talking about the next year's. Um, 
courses. And she said, well, you know, I've got all these people, all these students in my logic classes. They don't care about the, the logic per se. And she, she met the analytic, you know, the mathematical thing. They want to learn how to think better. And she said it with a kind of disdain. Like yeah. so I said, how about a course for those people? <laughs> I'd love to teach that. So we did. Um, and I taught it, uh, I think, starting my second year, though, every time I, every year I was there. And um, yes, that is how the, um, the, the logic textbook came about. Um, but in somewhat uh, indirect way, because I had, um, there were a couple of objective students, I think from Davidson, actually, down huh. your neck of the woods. Yeah. And um, who got in touch with me and they said they wanted to set up a kind of private tutoring. Um, right. And so I worked with them. Um, and then um, the young woman went to work for W.W. Norton, the public. Right. And everyone at Norton starts as uh, what they call a traveler, a salesperson. Right. Yeah. Going around to schools and everything. And she got bored with that and wanted to advance to editing. So she thought if I bring a book in, um, yeah. I can do it. So when she, when she showed me the number, I had no idea what the finances of textbooks were. When she started showing me some of the numbers, I said, count me in, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If this thing takes off, you can make some money doing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Been in, it's in, in five editions, David. It's a, anything beyond the third edition is a stupendous success. I, I think I have three of the five editions. <laughs> a couple of years, a couple of years ago, I literally sat down and looked at the differences between them. I, they, I, I can only tell they got better. You change, you change certain things. They got better. The stuff on logical fallacies is good as well. Uh, another just great book. And uh, I have it in, I have the latest one in paperback. It's not too expensive, but buy the expensive ones as well. Maybe you still get royalty. It's a fabulous, it's a fabulous <laughs> book. And yes. you're still in touch with the co-author, right? Uh, oh yeah, uh, Debbie Hudgens and I um, have become fast friends, and I found out that oh, actually she has uh, kind of a secret objectivist background. She was a big uh -huh. fan of Ayn Rand in high school, yeah. and got uh, all all her college and grads faculty said, "Don't uh, don't ever mention that." Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's often said that if you want to learn something, and, uh, uh, but you want now to really she's teaching on Rand in, in her ethics. Oh, yeah. It's often said that if you want to uh, really learn something, uh, teach it. So I'm curious yeah. whether <laughs> uh, in all your writings and teaching, did you become a better thinker just teaching it? Did you become a better thinker because you focused on epistemology thing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Be, uh, I mean, that that's that um, common statement. You, you, you know, you know something when you have to teach it. Um, I found that in spades when I began teaching. Um, and that's what made teaching exciting for the first, I don't know, four or five years. Um, yeah. Pick up a new topic, inventing a new topic uh, for a course. Um, but then I'll and you know, being creative in, in course structure and so forth, but also just being able to explain things that, that I knew and I could pass a, uh, you know, an oral exam on in grad school, but yeah. having to teach it to undergraduates. Um, what, like, you know, why was Thales a significant philosopher? Everything is water. Right, yeah. 
So, yeah. um, and, uh, but what happened, I think, was that um, I kind of got burned out on teaching. I stopped, I stopped learning as much mm. and uh, from teaching. So I stopped learning as much from my students. And I realized at some point that, you know, there really are two kinds of teachers. Um, there are scholars who teach as a means to be able to do research and write and inquire. Yes. Yes. Then there are people uh, who are essentially teachers who love pedagogy, who love the task yeah. of figuring out how best to, um, you know, get ideas across to their students, train them yeah. to advance their thinking. And they, um, in public, you know, most schools, universities and colleges require you to publish. So they publish as a means to be able to keep teaching. Right, right. Uh, I was definitely on the in the first category. Well, the other way I think of you, David, is uh, I've often thought of is that there are professors, we well know them, who prefer to talk to other professors. Yeah. <laughs> then there are professors who can talk to other professors or, or, or write to them, write, but then also students. But then there's a third level. We call them public intellectuals, I think, today. Can, uh -huh. a, professor, can a professor not only do good and trailblazing research that's legit and also teach students, but then also reach the general public. That's a lot harder to do. I, I know. And you're really good at all three of them. And I mean, the Barons, I mentioned the Barons essays, perfect yeah. example of uh, you're a really smart guy, but how do you explain inflation to a, you know, an, a reader that's an investor class or something like that? And they claim to know a lot about inflation. Those were mostly, you know, political, economic, social essays. They were just fabulous, but um, but they're coming from a philosopher. And I said, but, right? And most people say, but, how can a philosopher know all this stuff about reality? <laughs> it was just great. Great. So um, I don't think uh, you've had any other philosophers on, on uh, writing for them. I'm curious, the student, I, feel, uh, I experienced the same thing. If the students aren't really advanced, it's hard to teach to them and learn for yourself. When you started speaking at objectivist conferences, did you feel like the audience was a little smarter and, and, and got you more interested again or, or no? Um, yes. Um, it, it, you know, the objectivist conferences like the uh, Jefferson School that right. we attended right. back in the day, um, you know, they there were people of all ages, but it probably, I mean, definitely students, also some retired people, but there were a lot of professionals in between who, yes. you know, right. loved the ideas. What I found was, so it, that, that was often, you know, great, great questions, um, uh, you know, during a lecture or after a lecture or just in conversation around the conference. Yeah. Yeah, but um, the context was different because they they were interested in the, the ideas of objectivism. Ah, it didn't right. necessarily right. have the analytic context, right, right, uh, or the academic context, right. That uh, I need to take account of when I'm writing philosophy. Yeah. So um, there was, uh, and and you know, sometimes I would, uh, I have to admit, I got a little impatient with it when, you know, yeah. there were. There were a lot of simple laugh lines, uh, trashing Keynes or, you know, uh, <laughs> Plato. Like a, like a stand-up comedian knows, you know, this, they're, they're going to giggle at this. I've done this before. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, it's almost too easy. It gets too easy. You mean that at that yeah. point? It does. You have to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, if you're, you're a good speaker, you know that you've got to speak to your audience and 
that means having a sense of their their context and what will interest them yeah um, so you know it's it was it was not particularly a problem but i thought uh, what i was always most interested in was how do i teach them something new that's it, you know obviously objectivist but not something that they might not have thought of before yes they you know the people who attend the conferences are there they're not getting credit for it um yes, they're, right. they're, they're out of interest right but at the same time i remember when i was at those conferences i was kind of biased toward unless i saw them in academia unless they were a student you know moving toward a degree um i couldn't find the motivation to to get to the level we were teaching at mm -hmm. um, nice to help the general audience but they're as we say are not the capital are not the capital goods that produce future intellectuals. And I know you've been, I know from your history, you've been interested not only in the ideas, but how ideas are disseminated and how, and how movements work or don't work. It's a, it's a, so it's really a specialty when you think about the role of philosophy in history or what moves the world or how yeah. certain group, you know, fascinating stuff you've written there. Um, let's fast forward a little bit about, uh, let me ask a more abstract question instead of getting into the weeds. Uh, Ayn Rand's philosophy and then Ayn Rand's life and the way she lived it. Uh, are, some people have trouble like reconciling the two. But, and I don't think you did. I think your view was she has a biography. It's a fascinating biography. It's a really amazing, it's a Hollywood tale to be told, right? <laughs> Russia, Russia to the Empire State Building. But um, foibles and uh, weird things happen. But does that detract from the philosophy. We, we pretty much always able to say, listen, there's a philosophy here and I'm not perturbed or set aside by certain personality traits or biographies. It doesn't make me reject the philosophy or look at it. How would you just look at, you know, a philosopher's philosophy and then a philosopher's life and someone saying, hey, you're, you're not living up to your philosophy. Therefore, it's not true. Kind of an ad hominem, isn't it? But what thoughts on that? Yeah, it's definitely an ad hominem, and I've heard that so many times. And uh, when when I'm debating or you know, just on a panel with someone who says that, I, I always call them out on it because it's just it's it, it's yeah. a straightforward logical fallacy. Yeah. But there's something much deeper than the logic. Um, when you know there there were things I I wondered about in the objectivist movement, but I was never centrally in. I mean, I, I was involved. I was even after uh, the Rand Institute was formed. I, 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 I was on their speakers bureau. I was going around giving yeah. talks, and actually, they helped fund a semester or the foundation for the new intellectual help. Uh, right, provided funding for a semester off from Bassa so I could write. Yeah, but. Um, there was always, a, you know, the sense, this background, it, it's like, a, you know, they talk about the, uh, what is it, the background radiation from the Big Bang. It's just, huh. you, you know, you detect it only in certain circumstances, but it's yeah. just always kind of there. Um, yeah. It was this, something like that was the sense of, you know, there's, there's, there's a tendency toward dogmatism and, um, uh, excluding people, um, yeah. and 
for a while, I thought, well, we're all, we're past that. And then Barbara Brennan's book came out. And actually, I mean, this was three years before, you know, the split, which had, and the split was really had nothing to do with Barbara's book. But right. I read it and I talked talked about the book. Uh, I didn't see eye to eye with Leonard at, right. that it was awful and malicious. And I had conversations with a lot of other people. And it started me thinking about something that was the beginning of what became truth and toleration. And that was the concept of idolatry. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in um, the Judaic Christian tradition, you know, God says, no graven images, you have no God before me. Right. He's down the gold. Everything, or Moses did. But, um, you know, what, the essence of it is you're identifying a concrete object in the world with a transcendent being. Yes. And you can make an analogy, which I did in Truth and Toleration, um, that you, with the secular s- system where the ideas, the philosophy of objectivism is not identical with Ayn Rand. Yeah. But I felt, I began thinking um, when I was looking at the reaction to Barbara's book that um, people were saying, if Ayn Rand is flawed, then the philosophy is not right. But if the philosophy is right, we can't acknowledge any flaws. So like a false alternative there. Yeah. Exactly. And so that got me thinking about, um, uh, you know, what the philosophy was and yeah. In my mind, separating her a little more clearly from the movement, yeah, uh, as well as her person, and um, so one thing led to another. But uh, and then, um, but I, that's that was my first really. I thought that there's something serious. Thought that there's something wrong here. So uh, this opens up a couple of avenues. One, the the issue of open objectivism versus closed. Uh, but I just want to focus on a more positive treatment, make sure we get this on the record. There is a fabulous, I don't have to tell you what section I'm talking about, but it's really not well-known section of truth and toleration where you scrupulously, I can tell this was a lot of work. You scrupulously go through and, and uh, explain what you think are the core essential principles of objectivism in all the branches. And interestingly, excluding aesthetics, because she did herself when she was asked, you know, give me a thumbnail sketch in all the, I think, the opening essay, What is Objectivism, in one of her books. Um, and she gives very thumbnail sketches, right, of each branch. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's really important, right? Because if, if objectivism is everything she ever wrote or said, some stuff she said was just really marginal. Yeah. <laughs> dubious, but we don't have to say what they are, but uh, that's too big a task, right? To say that's what objectivism is. And maybe objectivism, capital O, you know, yes, that's, we can certainly circumscribe everything she said and wrote, mm-hmm. but, if it's, but your view, I think if it's gonna be a growing, fruitful, uh, expanding philosophy, um, you do need to start with that core, right? Because if you don't understand, embrace the core principles, you're probably not an objectivist. So I'll stop. They say more about, was that hard to do when you had to sit down and say, now I'm going to tell you what the core is. 
And this is the core, and that's not the core. Was that hard? It was very hard. I I can't remember how much time I spent on it, but I agonized over it. Think about okay. Yeah. Well, if I wanted to find communism, what's what would that be right. like? Or or existentialism? Right. How do those things function? And yeah. because they are the, you know, that's how you do a definition or um, or any kind of analysis. You you you're trying to identify the nature of something and you compare it with other things that are in the same genus but different, and in on right. substantive things. You're, but you're using logic. You're using your yeah. logic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I put that out, and I it, it was my best judgment as a philosopher who knew objectivism really well and knew something about the history of philosophy as well. Right. You needed both. Yeah. I, I expected people to say, well, well, you know, I think you should have included this or the, Yeah. No one said anything. That would have been a healthy, that would have been a healthy exchange. Yeah. Yes. And so, it would have yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I what what I I noticed people doing was picking on something that I used to illustrate. I think the example was um, honesty is a virtue, right? I, on my list of the essentials was rationality is a virtue. Yeah. I think that um, that entails honesty and I can, yeah. I can give you the argument for that. But um, if someone says, well, you know, like on a, there are certain business situations in which um, your our understanding of honesty has to be changed. Right. Or, right. Um, fine. Um, even if someone thought that the um, theory of measurement omission as the process by which we form concepts, even if someone says, you know, there's a problem with this, um, my response would be. Okay, let's solve the problem. Let's find a better theory. But yeah, yeah. The, the core is concepts reflect reality. Concepts right. are about reality. Yeah, right. So um, as long as that core is intact, um, there are a lot of a lot of things that um, could be um, studied further, elaborated, modified. Um, you know, I have a few. I actually. <laughs> There are very few things I disagree with the brand's writings about. Um, mostly what I feel is, okay, what you mean? Um, yeah. And, yeah. I, and that's what ARI scholars do. Um, I know they, a lot of their, the books they published are about how to interpret, you know, this body of work uh, in ethics, whatever. But um, something that, but you and I know that something open to interpretation is not dogma. So yeah. let's not treat let's not treat it as dogma or scripture or, um, yeah. It just it strikes me. I think you and I have talked about this before. It strikes me as very interesting that in her theory of concept formation, the issue of the essentials in a in a definition or in a concept, the getting to the essential, the thing that you know most explains all other attributes. Why cannot why can that not be applied to the concept of objectivism itself? It's right. got essentials. It's got derivatives. At some point, it has derivatives like, you know, no president could be a woman. That's, you know, highly disputable. So if you disagree with that, it's, it's hard to say you're not an objectivist. Um, yeah, so I, I think uh, to speak about, David, also the issue of whether open and closed, you know, open and closed pertains, say, to content method application, but mm -hmm. also the issue of who you talk to, who you try to convince, yeah. who you try to persuade. 
And, and if I recall the sequencing right, that was the first objections people had that not that you were diluting objectivism or, or, or adulterating it because you weren't, but it was more the idea of, you know, we don't talk to uh, our enemies. And then the enemies list was kind of long and weird. Yeah. Talk about that, talk about that a little bit. The idea that open kind of also means, you know, reaching out to, you know, possible converts and, and are we sanctioning them or are they just hearing us out? Your philosophy on that and how it differed in the early days from others. Um, well, I always, I mean, I, I went to graduate school, then I went to, to teach at Vassar. I had colleagues, we had yeah. conversations about philosophy. We had little department symposia where someone would deliver a paper or you yeah. know, read a paper and talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I was used to that. That's what that, and I'm in any, in, in any healthy field discipline, that's how people normally function. Um, when they're they're not at each other's throats, <laughs> yeah. but the um, and that's how I thought the objectivism movement was functioning. I mean, if, yeah. before before nineteen eighty nine, I guess when when uh, I was first attacked for talking to a libertarian group, right? Um, the um, what I felt at the time and what I wrote in the initial short piece called The Question of Sanction was, um, look, not of agreeing with someone and not of uh, ignoring moral failures, but um, the di uh, difference in ideas, um, that should be an opportunity for discussion, debate, outreach, and it, um, and and then I said, after all, objectivism is an open philosophy. Yeah, I've said many times. I thought that was a throwaway line. I just thought, you know, reminding people of what we all understand. I was stunned when it turned out people didn't believe that. But um, yeah, so now um, I think part of, of of open objectivism, I would in incorporate a sense of benevolence that I think tol toleration, the, the incentive for it. Yes. Is, I mean, it, it's a particular form of benevolence that is focused on learning and yes. intellectual right. engagement. Right. Um, but that's, that, that's an important part of our lives. I mean, for, any, for everybody, not just intellectuals. Um, and so it means being open to um, uh, open to new ideas, open to inquiry, and open to discussion and debate with people who don't. Yeah. And, it, and, uh, and after Because we may learn. And... Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not difficult after a while to see whether someone's just not open to persuasion, but the idea that we give someone the benefit of the doubt uh, just sounds like benevolence. And uh, there would be some people, I suppose, who say, listen, I'm just going to study this philosophy kind of scholastically. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stay within the text. I'm going to become an expert in the text. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk to others who know the texts. And, and I can see there's a certain interest people would have with that. But if you're interested in advancing the ideas, that, that's not going to do it, right? You're going to look for a small enclave of people and it starts actually sounding uh, academic -y in the sense of scholastic, internal, insular, 
Um, but I think you've always been interested in the idea of persuading. And, and in many ways, it's more difficult, isn't it, David? I mean, it's easier to talk to people who are using the same jargon. I mean, you and I have been in academia. We know how that works. Yeah. And, it, it, and, it, and it has that way in objectivism. But And so it's not for everybody. But the idea of I know all this technical stuff, and you do, and I know the core of objectivism, and you do, but then now go try to complain and explain it to a conservative or a libertarian. Mm -hmm. So someone who's in our orbit, but not quite in our orbit and not quite able to defend mm -hmm. either reason or capital. That's more difficult. Isn't that more difficult? Well, also more fun, but in yeah. many ways, it's more difficult, isn't it? It's not oh, it's much more difficult. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is relates to some of the other uh, things we talked about, but I, I had all, have always been um, interested in ab advocacy and persuasion and uh, in cultural and political realms, yeah. um, as well as just pure inquiry and discovery. Right. So, um, you know, I, unlike, I, you know, there's some people who are just intellectuals that they, right. they uh, all they care about is discovery. Um, yeah, yeah. But oh so, yeah, yeah, I've been doing that, you know, pretty much all my life. And even when I was at Vassar, I was writing for Barron's <laughs> um, and other places. And, and if you're going to engage in that, you have to have, you know, invite people. They, you know, not many yeah. people will respond if you, if you, you know, call start out um, by denouncing them as evil for holding certain ideas. I mean, that's kind of a non-starter conversationally. And <laughs> or, 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 con or converting um, errors of knowledge into you must be dishonest. Yeah. If you, don't, if you don't see that, it's not my job to inform you, but to moralize against you. It's, it's, it's almost too easy. Uh, that's not the real objection to it, but it's something like that. Uh, it, to impugn motives right away it's it's almost like yeah. a cheap a cheap way out but but also i think david that once you say and I, i'll never forget you use the word i'm a polemicist you use that in one of your 1989 thing and and I, and people think that's a bad thing like it's combative but if you look it up it just means interest in persuading others yeah. <laughs> and, and, and debating them it's it's got a fully innocuous uh connotation as far as i'm concerned but people some people aren't really good at that i mean to hold your cool in a debate to think on your feet to try to bridge what what is this person thinking and why are they objecting to capitalism why are they sticking to religion i mean all the things you have to keep track of and yeah. then reach out to, to, to persuade um some people aren't good at it so they just get emotional and then uh you know resort to ad hominem so you feel that way i'm sure too when you when you do this it's not only fun and challenging but you got to keep your cool as well stick to the rules of logic and, and not resort to fallacies and all the stuff you learned when you were a kid. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really helps that objectivism um, yeah. helps with in that respect is that, you know, the ultimate uh, criterion is reality and truth. Reality. That's the judge in the right. room. That's the arbiter. Right. Yeah. right. And however stupid or even malevolent, I think of someone's ideas are, yeah, it doesn't impugn. First of all, it doesn't you change reality, and it's no threat to you. It's, and no, it's threat no threat to, to me either. Right. And that's a, the the lack of threat, and that's what I, I think objectivism is a real help for if you're in this uh, 
in this world of discussion and debate out there and polemics, because, you know, disagreement is not a threat to you. It, it, it can be an opportunity or it can be, you know, if someone's unreachable, you just walk away. Um, but there, people say, if I can't convince you, that means something wrong with me. Yeah, there's an insecurity. There's, a, yeah. there's an insecurity there. Either you don't really fully know your argument, uh, or you place too much credence on the idea of agreement among minds is really the basis of knowledge, which is uh, you know that's not the correspondence theory of truth. That's the coherence spirit theory of truth. Yes. Um, Unrugged individualism, a fabulous book as well. What motivated that? The idea that people just weren't seeing the value, the selfish value, as you put it, of benevolence. But why do they not see benevolence as, you know, of selfish value to people? Well, I wrote that in the mid um, 1990s. Um, yes, right. So, and first gave it as a summer seminar lecture. And, uh, it, things have been rolling around in my mind, um, partly just thinking about the way I behave toward people yeah. and uh, the way people I liked, you know, treated each other. And also, but also um, just began thinking more and more about, does this have a place in objectivism? Yes. And yeah. we had decided that the topic for that year's, the 1995 summer seminar was going to be civilization. Uh -huh. Okay, this is this is a form of civility, and I'm, yeah, now's my sure. chance. Now's my chance. Right. So, um, yeah, and and I just began trying to be systematic about some of the thoughts I've been rolling around for years, and uh, and one of the one of the amazing things uh, was going through the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrug and seeing yeah. how many instances. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it probably was motivated by, you know, the, one, of, one of the most common, if not the most common uh, assault on objectivism. Well, you're, you're promoting self-interest. That, that's selfish. Yeah. And, you know, people are applying their normal sense of, of, of selfishness. Right. And, you know, we can get our backs up and say, no, you don't understand what we mean by selfish. But how about um, in, instead of that a negative reply, which is perfectly valid, how about adding the a positive thing? No, we believe in benevolence. We just don't think it's that we, it's different from altruism. And um, once you make that distinction, you know, a lot of people get it. I think a lot of people get it. Um, I remember, um, remember back in the early 90s, uh, Hillary Clinton was had had developed this whole takeover of medicine. Yeah, Hillary Care. Um, yeah, I remember. And so I was, I wrote this uh, talk um, called "Is There a Right to Healthcare?" Yeah. And uh, not to go into too much detail, but I when I was giving that to a conference of doctors, I just said I made a distinction between you know the generosity of doctors. Uh, the, you know, the astounding generosity that physicians of all kinds have always extended and the duty to serve people. And every, I swear, those, those, I mean, this was, these were all conservative, conservative right. 
group. So no big surprise, but they were, um, you know, it was like this, the, the clouds parted. Yeah. Right. <laughs> See it. Yeah. That's um, nice. That's so, a nice feeling. Yeah. yeah. That's a nice feeling. I think it, we only have a few more minutes, David. So I wanted, oh God, this, I, I could talk to you for three hours more about these things. <laughs> we, we do that privately. Yes. Right. <laughs> We've been known to do that. Um, I just have to make a kind of declarative statement. Your, your method has been adopted. I mean, when I look at objectivism today, there, there are people trying to add to the philosophy, amend, extend, apply. There's many, many who formerly said it was closed are talking about, you know, whole new volumes need to be written to elaborate and explain this or that. And yeah. the second part of it, the second part of it, outreach to others, um, yeah you know, without sacrificing your principles. I think you've paved the way. You haven't always been, maybe never been credited for that. But um, I just want to say that as a as a declarative thing. That's, that's what I've noticed. That's what a lot of others on the Atlas Society have noticed. And I congratulate you for that. But I, but I, I myself came late to it, really late to it, way too late. But I'm glad I'm here now. But, but it's really quite an achievement, David, because to the extent that's happened at all, I, I think you've blazed the trail. It's just amazing. And so I, I wanted to leave with a question, really. I mentioned this earlier because I think you're very fascinating in the sense you have this deep technical knowledge uh, on, in epistemology, but then also this deep knowledge of objectivism, but then also a, a, a theory of movement, a theory of how, I mean, you've written on Christianity and Marxism and, mm. and when, you get, when you get a leader and what is it like when they're alive and what happens after when they have apostles and what goes wrong or what goes, I mean, these are major things that have influenced the world, right? Christianity, Marxism. Yeah. We, we hope that a hundred years from now, we're including objectivism in that name of those. So looked at that way, what, what would be your kind of summary assessment of where the movement is, where it's going, um, and application to America's future? What's your assessment generally on objectivism and its role in the future? Well, I, it, it's very hard to say. I've never been good at predicting. Um, uh, right. And uh, mm. you know, as I said in one conference, um, you know, Sort of depends whether you see the glass as one quarter full or three quarters full. <laughs> uh <-huh>. um, right. <laughs> That's funny. I, I try to be uh, up the years and of, of you know, be, this being my job, full-time job, and 60 years since Rand was writing 60 yeah. more. Um, the ideas, there's, there has been a huge impact. Uh, I mean, Atlas Shrugged and Thunder are still selling gazillions back in the in, in the financial crisis in 08. I mean, they, they went through the roof. And um, so people are reading the books and probably it's only a small fraction that get arrested by the ideas, by the system. Yeah. And unfortunately... Um, the way our culture is moving, the academic and now, you know, the political and social and yep. even business context are, are so imbued with bad ideas, with identity politics and um, the primacy yep. of equality. Uh, you know, I've run out of new stuff to say. Hmm. So I don't know. Um, I think it, it will take, you know, 
people are smarter about this than I am um, to, to make that change. I, I would just say that I think in, in the academic realm where we're ignored, but not always with the same degree of ho ho political hostility, but because Ayn Rand's her Um, I've always thought what, what, what galvanizes the intellectuals is someone who opens up a fertile field for further research and development. I mean, yeah. you know, you know yeah. how it works and objectivism has, but we haven't made that clear to the thinkers, uh, clear enough anyway. Um, but yeah. also I think, um, I don't know. I, I, we see young people coming in. Um, Jennifer Grossman, um, that started CEO now for um, yeah. six years, has, yeah. has really uh, drawn a huge following among younger people and following for objectivism for the uh, Atlas Society. Yeah. And um, so I, you know, the way history works, there's movement and counter movement, movement, yeah. counter movement. And a lot depends um, on the individuals who can attract and galvanize people's attention. Um, yeah. You know, we need, we need more of them. And, but yeah, I think, I think equivalent to what you said, David, about, you know, arguing with someone and the confidence you have in the back of your mind. Well, reality really is the arbiter sitting in the, judge's chair here. I needn't get defensive about anything. I, I, I feel, I think you do too. I feel the same way about objectivism. There are a lot of personalities in this movement. There are a lot of personalities that don't get along <laughs> and that's to be expected. We're supposed to be individualists, right? But what's the arbiter in the room? The philosophy itself, what is the core of it? What does it really mean? And uh, you go from there and may the best man and woman and argument win. I, I think even the fact that there are competing objectivist groups could be a sign of that's a good thing. That's a good yeah. thing. We're specialized, we specialize in different things. We don't all have to get along, um, but um, attention to reality and attention to the philosophy is everything. Uh, we have to wrap up. And David, I cannot thank you enough. I think that I speak for hundreds of thousands who think uh, you've, yeah, you've plowed these fields and made it fertile for the philosophy to, to expand and grow. I, I think if you had not done this, it might be dying on the vine. I mean, it's a really amazing three decade story it's it's still being written I, I think you guys are growing faster than ever and it's just a wonderful story and you're still intellectually active uh, people know that people see you it's it's a wonderful inspirational thing for many of us i just wanted you to know that know that well thank you richard i appreciate we, it we love you for all that you've done in that regard just really great stuff really great well thank you so, so much and okay. i must say um from my semi-retired position, I'm I I'm I love being uh, watching what's happening and not have to do it all. Yeah, <laughs> do as much. It's um, time for it's time for others to pick up the uh, the shovels, David, and start. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the hammer, the hammers, and the and the building materials. Yeah, and move on and build on your shoulders and others. You know? So, thank you, thank you, David. I want to thank all of you also for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, tell others about it. If you enjoyed it uh, and any of the other materials from the Atlas Society, please consider making a tax-deductible 
contribution. Go to atlassociety.org. Also get on the mailing list when you go there. Uh, visit the events page. You'll see events like this and others almost every day. Really good stuff, webinars and things like that. I'm told that the next Atlas Society special discussion will be, well, I must know because I'm in on it, the Russia-Ukraine war <laughs> Friday. But really the one after that, I've heard Robert Bryce before. It'll be Robert Bryce. He's an energy expert. He's just fabulous. So he's mm. coming next and, and he'll be next. So, so look out for that. David, thank you again. Uh, we, love you, you. we love what you're doing. And uh, thank you so much for sharing all your ideas and thoughts. Thank you, David. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. This was okay. great. I enjoyed I'll it. See you around. See you. Bye. -bye.